actual data on the, on the rise in an enormous number of diseases that are going up dramatically in our, in our population, exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops. It's quite, quite stunning. I mean, the correlations are just amazing. And then people easily dismiss it. They say correlation doesn't mean causation, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand how people can ignore this because we have to say all these diseases are going up. I mean, there's Alzheimer's, autism, obesity, diabetes, various gut problems, liver problems, you know, kidney problems, just the list goes on and on. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gravey. everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravey. I am your host today. And I'm very excited to introduce my first guest to you. Her name is Stephanie Senna. She's been on the show before and she's back because she's just so amazing. Stephanie has been associated with MIT for five decades. She has four advanced degrees from MIT And she is a senior research scientist there. And since 2008, she has been studying health issues, focusing on glyphosate and sulfur. And she has done much research on those issues as well as on autism. And today we're going to be speaking with her about her new book, Toxic Legacy, how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. And I'm just thrilled that she's able to join us today. Stephanie, welcome to Food Integrity Now. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited about having you on the show. And I know you've been studying and talking about glyphosate for over a decade. And I love that you share what you've learned in your new book and from a scientific perspective. And the book that Stephanie has just written that will be released on June 24th. Is that right? Uh, It's now July 1. Oh, it is July 1? Okay. It got changed to July 1. Okay. That's going to be released on July 1. It's called Toxic Legacy how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. So let's start out by talking about how you heard about glyphosate and what prompted you to do more research on it. Uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting story because I, was, I got worried about autism around the 2006, 2007 timeframe. Um, I was noticing the rates were continuing to go up steadily every year. And, uh, you know, they're thinking it's a genetic disease. Genetic diseases don't go up. They should be, they can't be going up that fast if it's just genetic. And so I figured there had to be environmental factors involved and I wanted to figure out what it was. And I started looking at a bunch of things, looked for five years, learned a lot about autism because I was very much studying what autism is and all the different comorbidities. It's a complicated disease, gut, you know, gut problems are clearly central to autism. And so after five years of searching, I was feeling frustrated because I kind of felt like, you know, maybe it's antibiotics messing up the gut. I wasn't sure, but I really didn't think I had it. And then I happened to be at a conference where Professor Don Huber gave a two-hour presentation on something called glyphosate. And I actually am embarrassed to admit I didn't know what glyphosate was at that time. 
But after that two hour presentation, I felt very confident that I had found my answer. And I just basically dropped everything else and started studying this chemical every, every which way I could and um, haven't stopped. <laughs> so that's been 2012. Since then, I've just been pouring over glyphosate literature and then sewing it together with all the different diseases because it turns out it's not just autism. And I sort of found out later, so I mean, I sort of knew people were not very healthy these days, but when you look at the actual data on the, on the rise in an enormous number of diseases um, that are going up dramatically in our, in our population, exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops, it's quite, quite stunning. I mean, the correlations are just amazing. And then people easily dismiss it. They say correlation doesn't mean causation, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand how people can ignore this because we have to say all these diseases are going up. I mean, there's Alzheimer's, autism, obesity, diabetes, various gut problems, liver problems, you know, kidney problems, just the list goes on and on, uh, autoimmune disease. And um, we seem to be able to just get used to the new normal, which really surprises me. You know, it's like, oh yeah, one in 54 kids have autism. What else is new? I mean, it's just amazing how easily we adapt to a situation where everybody you know has got some kind of disease and that's okay with you. You know, it just really frustrates me that the government yeah. isn't sort of alarmed. The people in the government should be very, very alarmed with, by this situation. They should be trying everything they can to figure it out. Yeah. And they don't seem to be. They're like happy to just let us spend more money on medicine, you know, increases pharma's uh, bottom line. They get very wealthy and <laughs> everyone's, they don't mind that we're sick. I mean, that's, just, that's the realization I've had. It's like, yo, yeah, that's great. If you've got a sick population, we can make lots of money. That's the way pharma seems to frame it, you know? Yeah, yeah. well, in case uh, our listeners, I think uh, our audience is pretty savvy, but if they don't know who Don Huber is, who Stephanie mentioned, he is a plant pathologist, professor emeritus, uh, Purdue University, and he he knows his stuff. Uh, I've interviewed him a couple of times on this show over the last 11 years that I've been doing Food Integrity Now. So uh, check that out too for more information. But she pretty well has it covered in this book. You say in the book, something terrible seems to be affecting every living thing on the planet, the insects, the animals, the health of human beings, including children. Something hiding in plain sight, and the common denominator is glyphosate. So let's connect some of those dots in some of your science and other science and, and what we know. So let's talk a little bit first off about the history of glyphosate so that our listeners can understand where it came from and why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was actually first patented as a pipe cleaner. It, it strips metals off of pipe, pipes. And in fact, it binds very strongly to many uh, minerals. And that's part of its pathology as well. But they didn't realize it could kill weeds. It was kind of by accident they discovered that. And then they found it could actually kill all plants. And that's what got Monsanto interested in the possibility of it being used as an herbicide. And so Monsanto patented as, as an herbicide, I believe, in 1969. And it was introduced into our market uh, in the agricultural market in 1974 when we started to be able to buy it uh, I think around that same time we could buy it to kill the dandelions in our yard so it's been used both you know residential areas to control weeds and extensively on the farms uh, to control weeds and particularly um, after around late 1990s when they came up with these GMO Roundup Ready crops these were uh, they, they figured out how to insert a bacterial gene into the crop 
that would protect it from glyphosate so that you could just spray glyphosate all over the crop and it wouldn't die. That became a tremendous boon for agriculture because it became very easy to control weeds without worrying about also poisoning your plant, your crop. And so, um, and it was really starting around 2000 that you started to see the rates of glyphosate usage go up dramatically year by year. So you started to see this exponential rise in the use of glyphosate on crops, along with the exponential side by side with the exponential rise in autism, perfect match those two curves, they coincide like a 0.98 correlation coefficient. It's really quite stunning. Well, and it's not just glyphosate that is toxic and we're gonna get into some of the ways it's toxic, but so it's not just the glyphosate itself that's in the compilation of the Roundup formula. It also contains surfactants and adjuvants, which are additives that make it do certain things like be absorbed more easily and things like that. And so Roundup is dangerous because of the glyphosate. But it's also dangerous because of these surfactants and adjuvants. And well, yes, it's been quite stunning. In fact, there's been a lot of research, especially Seralini's group in France. He's done a, a lot of really good research and many papers published with his team. And he was, I think, really central in showing that Roundup was much more toxic than glyphosate by itself. And in fact, when they evaluated glyphosate, you know, back when they got it approved, they always stood, studied it in isolation. But it turns out, and the, of course, they're adding the Roundup in order to make it, they're adding the extra ingredients in order to make it more toxic to the weeds, and they're succeeding. And it's helping, you know, the, it's both first help, helping the glyphosate to get into the cells, which is very important for it to become toxic. And they're also toxic in and of themselves because they mess up the cell membrane. And they're toxic not just to plants, but also to, to us, to animals. And this is what they were finding out that, uh, you know, you could, um, if you just use glyphosate alone, it didn't get taken up by the cells. It didn't really cause a lot of trouble. But if you added the Roundup ingredients, if you used Roundup instead of glyphosate at the same level of glyphosate, you got a much, much different response. And in fact, they, they have found in some studies that it's like a hundred or a thousand times more toxic, the formulation compared to the glyphosate by itself. It's yeah. acutely toxic. And it's worth noting that the EPA does not test the final formula of Roundup. And, and when I say Roundup, there's many different versions of Roundup, uh, Ranger Pro, and there's a whole list of, of different names that it goes by. But uh, the EPA only tests glyphosate, and they do a pretty poor job of that, but they don't test the final formulas. Well, yeah, they don't evaluate it in the context in which it's right. actually used, which is right. very important. And then they um, and they also don't look for those other ingredients as as toxic factors in anything. You know, they, they don't look for them at all. So, yeah, that's that's a real problem. So in there, they also have established there are acceptable levels right. uh, <laughs> of how much glyphosate we can have in, in food and all of that. It's my understanding, and maybe you can explain this a little further, that glyphosate can be very toxic at very extremely low levels. Can you yes, speak a little bit? Yes, that's a very, very interesting point, because one of the things that when they originally evaluated glyphosate, they created some rules of the game. And one rule was that if you couldn't see toxicity after three months, you know, studying animal studies, if you didn't see any obvious effects after three months, you were good to go. You didn't have to look any longer than three months. And the other one was that if, um, 
if high doses didn't seem to be toxic, then you didn't have to look at lower doses. You could just quit at those high doses and not bother to ever try to test against lower doses. That turns out to be a huge flaw because there are many chemicals that are called endocrine disruptors, and they're known to be far more toxic at low doses than they are at high doses. And I think it's really at low doses that they start to imitate things like hormones and they really mess up the, the endocrine system, which is all this hormone, you know, we have all these hormones that have all these different signaling me mechanisms that they do. And when you start throwing in this extra hormone, that's some toxic chemical really messes things up in terms of development, you know, and sexuality, lots of different things get messed up. Thyroid hormone is another one. Glyphosate um, has finally been shown to be an endocrine disruptor but it really didn't come about to even look for it until we were, became aware that it is toxic at very low doses. And this was the thing that Seralini, actually Seralini's paper, he had written a paper that was published just around the same time as I found out about glyphosate. So I remember I came back from that meeting where I heard that two hour presentation. And then I found this paper that Seralini had written with his collaborators. Uh, showing it was really an interesting paper because he had used low dose glyphosate. It was like entirely reasonable. Roundup, you know, and glyphosate looked at both at low doses, and he and he exposed these rats to this low dose over their entire lifespan, and he found that at three months they were doing okay. They, there wasn't any obvious difference between the exposed rats and the unexposed rats. It wasn't until four months that he started to see trouble. By the time they finished their lifespan, they had you know the females had massive mammary tumors. The males had uh, liver and kidney disease. All the, uh, everybody had sexual uh, issues with reproductive um, system and they had early death. They, they, they died prematurely. So it was very clear that it was causing a lot of effects but it was taking its time doing that. And so he made that point that low dose and long time are important factors in evaluating glyphosate. They were overlooked during the evaluation process back in the 1960s and 1970s. Well, what's important to note about this is that, that the industry that conducted its own studies didn't do long-term studies. They right, did they defined it to be adequate to do short-term and they defined it to be adequate to do high dose. As long as you didn't see high dose, you, know, you're not, you didn't have to look at low dose. I think they did it on purpose because they knew that if you looked, you'd find trouble. They probably observed it experimentally and decided, oh, well, we have to avoid doing that. You know, <laughs> Better not study it that way because we'll show trouble. So we'll just change the rules. You know, It was kind of amazing how they can... And of course, also without the additional uh, ingredients in the, in the formulation that make it so much more toxic to the weeds, you would think it might also make it more toxic to everybody else. Well, I think we found this out during the Lee Johnson versus Monsanto trial where some of the papers that Monsanto had written that uh, came up during that case proved that they knew, they, had, they absolutely knew that their, their formula was causing problems and that they hit it. Yes. And obviously, Carrie Gillum in her book, yes. the Monsanto Papers, I interviewed her on that book too. So if you want to learn more about that, check that out. But, you know, we found out how corrupt they were and that they blatantly knew that there were problems with this weed killer and they hit it. Exactly. Yeah, that's what's really frustrating, you know, and, and, there, and Anthony Samsel got a hold of a whole bunch of Monsanto unpublished documents from their research in the early days. 
he got it through FOIA, you know, Freedom of Information Act, and uh, he's and the and the government made him sign something that said he would not show these documents to anybody. He could keep them to himself and himself, and he could write about it, but he couldn't show them to other people, which I thought was really really strange that the government made him sign that. Um, but he uh, but he found all kinds of interesting, uh, you know, the, these looking through these documents, he found that Monsanto had done studies where they had shown clear evidence of cancer, they had shown accumulation in the tissues, you know, they had found these things through their studies, but they hadn't bothered to point it out to, uh, to people. They yeah. kept it secret. Yeah, uh, not really surprising, but so we have an epidemic of gut-related issues and illnesses happening in the world. How can glyphosate affect our microbiome? Yeah, well, that's very straightforward because they've, they've shown that there's this particular enzyme in the shikimate pathway called EPSP synthase that glyphosate disrupts in the plants, and that enzyme is super important for the plants. Uh, it, it, the shikimate pathway is a biological pathway that exists in all plants and exists in many microbes and doesn't exist in human cells. And so the argument is simple to say, oh, well, our cells don't have that pathway. They don't have that enzyme. They can't be harmed by glyphosate. That's the argument that's been used. But what they're overlooking is that our gut microbes do have that pathway and they use that pathway to produce essential molecules for the host because we are unable to make the products of that pathway. And those products become uh, get turned into all kinds of really important biologically active molecules in our body. So we depend upon our gut microbes to supply us with these uh, aromatic amino acids, tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine. They come out of that pathway. And uh, so when the microbes can't produce this adequate amounts of these substances for the host, then the host becomes deficient in those amino acids and also deficient in the derivatives of them, which are amazing. It includes all, all the... Um, uh, various hormones like serotonin and melatonin and uh, dopamine, uh, epinephrine, which is adrenaline, uh, melanin, the skin tanning agent, thyroid hormone, various B vitamins, vitamin K2, all these things come out of that shikimate pathway. So when your microbes are being exposed to glyphosate and aren't producing enough of these critical molecules that are precursors to all these amazing things, you become deficient in many different ways and you become sick. Yeah. Well, we also know that glyphosate is a chelator. Do yes. you want to explain how that works in our gut? Right. That's also a very big problem because it, it binds very tightly to various minerals, especially what's called plus two cations, which is things like manganese, magnesium, zinc, iron, cobalt. Uh, these are all very familiar to us as essential micronutrients that um, we can. And when we have deficiencies in these micronutrients, we get sick because these uh, metals are very, very important um, catalysts for various enzymes in our body. It's quite fascinating. Certain enzymes depend on specific ones of these and they become deficient when glyphosate grabs onto it, won't let it go. And so for example, manganese is a very important mineral for lactobacillus, the bacterium that helps us digest milk. You know, So when the baby's born, they need lots of lactobacillus to help them um, pr process their food. And the lactobacillus depend critically on manganese, which becomes unavailable because glyphosate binds it. So then the lactobacillus get killed off as a consequence of that. And um, all the minerals really, so many minerals get disrupted. For example, a study on cows showed manganese and cobalt were in cows and I think it was at eight different farms and all the cows and all the farms that were being eat, eating food that was rich in glyphosate had levels of cobalt and manganese in their blood that were way below the minimum of the required range. They were basically gone. 
And this again has lots of consequences to your health when you uh, aren't able to use those minerals appropriately to help uh, catalyze your enzymes. Wow. I know another thing that you talk about in the book, which I found fascinating is yeah, how important that amino acids are for our health. And can you talk about what you discovered about glyphosate and glycine, which is the smallest simple amino acid? I think this was just fascinating. Can you share that with our listeners? I would love to. And it's very fascinating for me too. And in fact, it's central to the book, as you probably saw. Yes. And I don't get around to talking about it, I think, until chapter five or something. So you, you get a lot of introduction to all the different evidence of glyphosate's harm before you get to the, the meat of the problem, which is how is it that one chemical could be causing so many diseases? This was the question that I pondered to try to figure out what could it be about this chemical that makes it so special? And, um, and of course, I knew it was a glycine. It's a complete glycine molecule, glyphosate. And glycine is, as you said, the simplest amino acid has no side chains. And glyphosate also has no side chains. So it matches glycine when it comes to recognizing amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And they're, they're assembled according to the DNA code, the famous four-letter code, three letters at a time. You know, three letters corresponds to a particular amino acid. There's about 20 amino acids, so the code is redundant. But um, every time uh, you see a code for glycine, then the machinery will be able to match, you know, fit that glycine molecule. It knows, oh, no side chains, it fits beautifully into the pocket. So does glyphosate, exactly fits. And so glyphosate can end up being mistaken. As you're trying to assemble the um, protein, the, the machinery grabs glyphosate by mistake and hooks it in to the chain, which it's perfectly able to do. And so um, glyphosate has extra material that's stuck onto its nitrogen atom, which is what gives it its very, very different properties from glycine. It's very different from glycine in terms of how it works, which means it messes up these proteins when it substitutes for glycine, creates a negative charge. It's got this bulky thing hanging off of its nitrogen atom. So uh, the protein can no longer do what it's supposed to do. And, it, and it's interesting because it affects specific proteins. And I talk in my book about a sort of glycine sensitivity motif within the protein that is based on how it messes up EPSP synthase. So Monsanto researchers did a great job showing that EPSP synthase is affected by glyphosate by virtue of messing up its ability to bind phosphate in PEP at substrates. It's very specific at a place where there's a highly conserved glycine residue in the, in the protein. So when that glycine residue in the protein is replaced by alanine through a change in the genetic code, the protein becomes completely insensitive to glyphosate at any level. That is a huge hint that it's that glycine that's the critical problem that causes glyphosate to be toxic to that protein. And so basically I use that as a model. I looked for other proteins, also have highly conserved glycines at places where they bind phosphate, very, very specific. And when you do that, you get a boatload of stuff. You just get so many proteins that are going to be predicted to be heavily damaged by glyphosate. And then you find many of those proteins have actually been shown to be suppressed by glyphosate experimentally. And then you find those proteins have that specific pattern consistently. The proteins that are being suppressed have this glycine residue at a place where it binds phosphate rule that is what's causing glyphosate to be able to fit because it puts its methylphosphonate unit right in the spot where phosphate's supposed to go. So the substrate no longer fits. It's beautiful. It's beautiful biochemistry and it's demonic and it's, and it's just in terms of what it would do to your biology. I, I really want our listeners to understand that. And, and so basically the glyphosate substitutes for the glycine. 
Yes, in the protein itself. So in it actually pro- replaces the glycine in the protein. Okay. This is not a theory. This is a theory. I mean, people are saying it's not possible. So there's a tremendous, it's one of those polarized things in, in, in this world right now where people think opposite things, but most people are saying, no, no, that's not possible. But the fact is it is possible and, and there's no, nothing to stop it from happening as far as okay. I can tell from the biology. So what might happen if this theory is correct? What might happen to their health? Yeah, well, a critical, critical thing that I'm seeing consistently is that it's messing up antioxidant defenses, and this is going to affect the mitochondria. So many studies have shown that glyphosate causes mitochondrial damage. It causes, you know, reactive oxygen species of mitochondria get damaged. They don't function correctly. And that, of course, mitochondrial disease is linked to many, many diseases that are going up exactly in step with glyphosate usage. So it all fits. Glyphosate's messing up the mitochondria ability to do their job, which is causing an energy shortage in the cell. And also because the mitochondria are releasing these toxic reactive molecules that are damaging the tissues. And that's just a cascade downward. And this is happening in the liver, especially, and in the pancreas, you know, these sort of organs that are getting hit hard because the glyphosate comes into the gut, ends up in the liver, and the liver gets uh, suffers from damage. You know, liver damage is very, very clear. A study, a recent study, showed uh, rats exposed to glyphosate at, at levels below regulatory limits developed fatty liver disease, and that's another disease that's going up exactly in step with glyphosate usage. And I can see exactly how it would cause fatty liver disease by virtue of one of these phosphate binding enzymes. And I talk a lot about it in my book, yeah. PEPCK, phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase exactly matches EPSP synthase in terms of having highly conserved glycine at the place where it binds PEP, in fact, the phosphate of PEP, the same substrate. And the glycine, you know, highly conserved glycine, same substrate, same problem, I'm predicting. And if you do suppress PEPCK, you have all kinds of problems, one of which is fatty liver disease. Yeah, and that's very straightforward. We know that fatty liver disease is really going up and up and up. And we're talking non-alcoholic fatty. That's fatty. right. And there's a difference. Yeah, there's a difference there. So uh, that that makes sense. Yeah, and in fact, even there was a recent human study where they looked at people who had fatty liver disease, and they and they compared them to people who didn't, and they looked at, at glyphosate in the urine, very specific, and they found a, a statistically significant correlation between higher levels of glyphosate in the urine and fatty liver disease. And even within the people who had the disease, they sorted them into two categories, sort of bad disease and less bad disease, you know, milder cases. And the, and the worst cases had higher levels of glyphosate, statistically significant, than the lesser cases. So they found this, you know, three-way split, all making sense in terms of glyphosate being connected to it, um, in terms of epidemiology, being connected to fatty liver disease. Wow. So next, I want to talk about uh, sulfate and glyphosate. Mm-hmm. Can you first give us a brief description of what sulfate does in the body and then talk about how glyphosate interferes with our, our body's ability to maintain that proper sulfate level? Yeah, sulfate's a big deal. And it, uh, I was interested in sulfate really from the get-go. When I first started looking at autism, I identified sulfate, you know, impaired sulfate homeostasis, I would call it as a feature of autistic kids. Uh, Rosemary Waring was a very uh, early person who had studied autism and found this bizarre problem with sulfate that they would actually flush sulfate through the urine and then they didn't have enough sulfate in their blood. Their blood levels were low. And sulfate um, is a really interesting molecule and a very, very important one in the body. It, it's, uh, it's found in the um, what's called the proteoglycans, just the um, 
glyco, it's called the glycocalyx, which lines the blood vessels. And the glycocalyx is really fascinating. It has these really long, complicated sugar molecules, sugar chains that have sulfate stuck onto them at various spots. And um, so it, the, the biology is complicated, but this, there's something called heparin sulfate, which is a component of these glycocalyx in the blood vessels. And the heparin sulfate actually is able to bind to all kinds of signaling molecules that come through in the blood. It actually, they attach it to the heparin sulfate. And that's how the cell sort of grabs it out of the blood and then uses that signaling molecule to do something, to, to change metabolic policy within the cell. So the whole, the cells communicate very effectively with the help of heparin sulfate lining the blood vessels. And that's a crucial part of making everything work properly in the blood, you know, including things like, you know, bleeding to death, you know, hemorrhaging and, and blood clots, all of that's connected to the heparin sulfate. If you don't have the proper levels of heparin sulfate in the blood vessel wall, then you start to get leaks, you can start getting hemorrhaging, and then you have to put in these blood clots to try to stop leaks and you get into this unstable blood, you know, circumstance, things like sepsis, you know, we have an epidemic in sepsis as well, which is this kind of uncontrollable blood disorder that's often connected to infection, but it's um, without sufficient heparin sulfate, you are really, really in trouble. And then we have other, other molecules that are sulfated in transit. Many, many biologically important molecules have a sulfate attached to them before they're shipped out the door. For example, the adrenal glands produce all these hormones, you know, and cortisol and all the sex hormones, across the, you know, the um, uh, reproductive organs, the testes and the ovaries, they produce these um, sex hormones, all of them are sulfated before they're shipped out. They're, they're hooked onto a sulfate, which makes them water soluble, which makes them able to travel through the blood and also inactivates them. So they don't um, do their job. They, they, they don't, they become turned off because of the sulfate. And then when you remove the sulfate, they get turned back on and then they can do their job, whatever it's signaling that they do. These hormones are really powerful signaling molecules, but sulfation and desulfation of those hormones is critical in order to be able to distribute them properly and to get them to go where they need to go and to get them to do what they need to do. Sulfate's a critical part of that puzzle. And so if you can't do that, if you can't add sulfate to these things, you get into all kinds of trouble. And even for example, cholesterol, when you stick a sulfate onto cholesterol, it becomes water soluble. You can ship it out in the blood without having to put it inside an LDL particle. But we have like this epidemic in high serum LDL, high cholesterol, and people being put on statin drugs because you know they have these LDL particles. These are lipid particles that contain cholesterol inside them. And you need those because you don't have enough sulfate to be able to carry the cholesterol sulfated, you could just put the cholesterol out into the blood and let it go without having to package it up inside an LDL particle. Wow. Sulfate does a lot. So basically it depletes the sulfate levels in our body and it affects many different mechanisms of the body. And I know we're going to talk about this at the, uh, when we're finished giving all the bad news about <laughs> Hang in there, people. There's going to be <laughs> there's going to be some solutions coming up. So okay, so I th I think I understand that. And again, that has to do with enzymes that bind phosphate because it's like PAPS phosphoadenophosphosulfate is a very interesting molecule which they call activated sulfate, and it's made by it, the enzyme that makes it binds to two ATP molecules, uses one for energy and uses the other one to turn it into PAPS. So it's a really fancy en enzyme that I talk about in my book that um, is essential for being able to transfer sulfate from one molecule to another. So when that enzyme is broken, you've got a lot of problems 
and that en enzyme has these uh, glyph glyphosate sensitivity issues that's going to make it uh, disrupted by glyphosate. Yeah. And heparin sulfate deficiency in the brain is very, very clearly linked to autism. That's something I found out very, very early on. Yeah. Well, speaking of the brain, uh, let's let's go there. So it has been shown that glyphosate may cross the blood-brain barrier. And what are some of the mechanisms to this? Well, you know, it's really because glyphosate is an amino acid that it operates like an amino acid and takes advantage of of, of programs that are already in place for transferring amino acids. So glutamate, for example, is a negatively charged amino acid that actually looks uh, has some similarities, biophysical similarities to glyphosate. So it's been shown experimentally. For example, like in the, in the nose, there's an experiment where they put uh, glyphosate into, into the nose of a rat and they found that the, that the cells in the nose were able to take up the glyphosate using these amino acid transporters that normally would transport amino acids like glutamate. So it's it's, it's fooling the system because it, it looks like, it looks sufficiently familiar to be something like amino acids that the body knows how to normally handle. So I think when you have a toxic chemical that's also an amino acid, you are asking for trouble because the body is going to take, it's going to use its machinery that it already has in place to move around amino acids to also move around glyphosate. So that's how it's getting in. It's really actively being imported by the cells. Uh, using these amino acid channels. Okay, so it gets into the brain, and then we take a look at the rise of the neurological diseases. Yes. Uh, you know, like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, all of They're all, all correlated. Yeah, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and autism have all been shown to be going up dramatically in step with the step with the rise in glyphosate usage. Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing. So you touched on this a little bit earlier about the low levels of glyphosate of being an endocrine disruptor. Yes. So let's talk how glyphosate may affect infertility and um, testosterone levels, for example. Right, right. Absolutely. And that one's very, very clear. And again, that gets into this model of um, enzymes that bind to phosphate. So there's a, an enzyme called aromatase, which is a member of um, a class of enzymes called cytochrome P450 enzymes. And studies have shown that glyphosate suppresses cytochrome P450 enzymes. That's a very important uh, class of enzymes in the liver. It does a lot of things, like it makes the bile acids, it activates vitamin D, it, it clears retinoic acid, I mean, all these things that it does, and it detoxifies a lot of uh, toxic chemicals. So very, very important class of enzymes in the liver that get disrupted, which is part of why you get liver damage, because they can't, the liver can't detoxify these things and can't make the bile acids. I mean, lots of things go wrong there. But the aromatase is a cytochrome P450 enzyme, and it converts uh, testosterone to estrogen. And so, and it has been shown that it gets suppressed and experimentally, it's been shown that aromatase gets suppressed by glyphosate. And as a consequence, the, the fetus is, is exposed to too much testosterone during development. This is all been, has all been shown in studies. And in fact, there's a brand new study, very interesting on, on girl babies, human study, girl babies. They looked at uh, glyphosate levels in the urine of the mother mid-pregnancy or end of the, I think it was the very end of the pregnancy, the glyphosate levels. And then they found that they were correlated with a measure. There's a metric that um, is used to uh, recognize high testosterone. They've learned experimentally that if the, there's a, a distance, it's called an anogenital distance. That is, uh, if it's too long, it's sort of male-like. 
and you can measure it in a girl baby and they found out that it was longer in association with more glyphosate exposure, which maps back to testosterone exposure in utero. So it all made sense. That metric, when you have, when a girl baby has this uh, abnormal length, uh, it's a very good predictor for something called polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, which is an epidemic today. It's something like 20% of women uh, suffer from polycystic ovary syndrome, which is connected to uh, uh, menstrual irregularities and very much a, 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 a source of um, infertility. So many of the people, women who are having trouble having a baby have this PCOS problem. And, uh, and so I think it, glyphosate is causing female inf infertility through this mechanism. And then there's also the male pathway. Of course, this testosterone, excess testosterone in utero is also messing up the male reproductive system. And, um, and sperm are extremely sensitive to glyphosate. They've done studies where they've exposed human sperm in vitro to glyphosate and found that it disrupted, it caused um, immobility problems. The sperm were not able to swim as well, which is crucial for getting fertilization to happen. And there were too few sperm, not enough were being produced either because they were being killed off or because the whole production mechanism was being shut down by the glyphosate. So fewer sperm more mobility problems translates into male infertility as well. So glyphosate is causing uh, infertility in both females and males. And in fact, there's a brand new paper, which is not, I didn't quote it in my book because I just got, heard about it a couple of days ago where they looked at um, sperm uh, counts. Apparently they were able to get data from the United States uh, government or from United States data of various sources of sperm count um, regionally, uh, mean sperm count of, um, of males correlating with amount of glyphosate being used in that region. So they had a whole, it was a spatial plot. It was a, all the, every plot on the curve was a, a sperm count versus glyphosate usage plot. And they showed a, a sliding, you know, sliding downwards, more glyphosate, lower sperm count with a highly correlated, highly uh, significant p-value for the uh, correlation of those two trends. Excess places where more glyphosate was used were places where there were lower sperm count on average among the males that were tested. Wow, so that that makes a lot of sense. So areas like, you know, the Midwest, the, exactly. the, corn, the corn Belt and all of that, that would be a place that to me would have those higher levels. Right. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, this stuff, this stuff does a lot of nasty things. So um, there's so much more in the book. One more thing I wanted to talk about before we go to some solution is you do mention, you do discuss glyphosate and how it may work with the COVID-19 virus. Do you want right. to share a little bit about that? I would love to because, and I've actually done a lot of podcasts where I've talked about that and even written some articles on the web because I feel that we are overlooking a, a big factor in our nightmare of COVID-19 because when you look across the world, the countries that are having a hard time controlling the virus are the same countries that are using a lot of glyphosate. It's really, to me, it seems very clear. And countries like Bhutan, which are mostly organic small farms, have almost no problem with glyphosate at all, with um, COVID-19. They're not even really bothered by COVID-19. So there's a very strong link, I think, between the degree to which the population is being exposed to glyphosate and the, um, and the degree of sensitivity to COVID-19 for people to die from it. And that makes sense to me because that's a whole chapter that I wrote in that book about the immune system. And I, and I showed how glyphosate can be predicted to have a major impact, negative impact on innate immunity. So it basically weakens the innate immune system. Well, that makes so much sense because we know that 
that the virus is worse for people who have had all these comorbidities. So exactly. glyphosate creates these comorbidities <laughs> exactly. or, or is a factor in it. So <laughs> that, that, that's pretty logical. You know, right. I know. In fact, you notice obesity is a very strong uh, predictor of uh, problems and, and glyphosate causes obesity uh, through its disruption of the lipid metabolism. So it's, um, I really think you, um, I bet you we could have, if someone had bothered to do it, they would have found like you could test glyphosate in the urine for people who ended up in the hospital, in the ICU, on the ventilators versus the ones who seemed to not even get sick with the disease. If you compared those two groups, I bet you would have found a very striking difference in the amount of glyphosate in the urine if someone had done that experiment. And I wish somebody would, because yeah. I really think that's crucial. And, and it annoys me that our government doesn't ever mention anything about just eating an organic diet to try to protect yourself from COVID-19. They don't even seem to think that there's any reason why we should worry about our food as possibly being causing us to have so much trouble with this virus. And it just yeah. infuriates me that we're not taking advantage of this opportunity to recognize that we need to change our ways with respect to how we grow food in order to protect ourselves from viruses like SARS-CoV-2. Right. Well, this brings us to uh, the last part of the book. You have a chapter called Reboot Today for a Healthy Tomorrow. And as you know, I love solutions. So we're going to discuss some of those. And you just mentioned food. So let's start there. Eat real That's food. That's so important. Yes. Uh, wholesome, organic, whole foods, you know, forget about the processed foods. Don't buy any more soy protein bars. I mean, they sort of epitomize processed food to me. Yes. And, um, and everything organic. Always look for the certified organic label or better if you can, you know, get to know your local farmer and, and make sure that he's not using chemicals on, on the crops. And then you can buy from, uh, get local fresh produce from a, uh, from a import, from a known source that's going to be really good food or grow your own even better if you have the energy to do that you know, grow your own food organically. And uh, that'll mean very, very fresh food, which is nice and, and also um, healthy food, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, kind of a, a step up from that is organic regenerative. Regenerative, right. Yeah, yes, and I talked about I, that in my book. I know you do, and I love it. You mentioned Gabe Brown. I interviewed yes. him recently. He's wonderful. And if you don't know what regenerative farming is, Look it up because I think it is a solution that is going to, if we embrace it, it's going to assist the planet. It's Absolutely. going to assist our human health and it's a really powerful solution. So it's even a solution for global climate change. I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. I really wonder about glyphosate and climate change, actually, because glyphosate disrupts an enzyme in the plants that is uh, known to be essential for photosynthesis. So I, I think I, I wrote about that in my book. Um, yeah. And it's um it's the most common enzyme on the planet. It's really fascinating. And it's um and I'm forgetting what it's called now. It's been a while since I wrote that, but it's pretty uh, pretty interesting because this enzyme is essential for capturing the carbon in the air and turning it into organic matter, which eventually goes into the soil and gets trapped. And so this is how you can pull carbon out of the air. And I just heard that we have the highest level ever recently measured of carbon dioxide in the air in the history of since man has, people have been tracking carbon dioxide. It's the highest ever this year, despite having all the shutdown. So we had a lot less driving around, you know, and that's supposed to be a major source of carbon emissions. Yeah. And even though we shut down the whole planet, we still had highest levels ever. But we don't think of glyphosate as being a, a potent, uh, potential playing a role in this, but yeah. I think it is. Yeah. 
another solution uh we were speaking about sulfur and how yes. glyphosate uh impairs our sulfur levels so um cruciferous vegetables right you mentioned uh, you know broccoli I, sprouts you know anything that contains a high amount of sulforaphane in it and i i love garlic garlic and onions we use them heavily in our cooking in my yeah. household and um, garlic is phenomenal and it has and, a really good source of sulfur yeah and so supplementation too is good mm -hmm. um you mentioned msm mm -hmm. um sulfate glucosamine yeah. sulfate methylsulfonylmethane and epsom salt baths i mean people don't think of the sulfate you know when they see epsom salt baths it's magnesium sulfate and people think of it as a source of magnesium, which is true, but it's also a source of sulfate. And it's a way to get sulfate into the body without by bypassing the gut. And I did talk in my book about how glyphosate messes up the gut microbiome in such a way that you become sensitive to sulfur. So a lot of people have sulfur sensitivities. They can't eat. They're trying to avoid dietary sulfur because it's causing gut problems and, and even brain problems like brain fog. And so, and this is because glyphosate is disrupting those enzymes that are able to manage sulfur properly to make the sulfur containing amino acids and to make the sulfate. When they, those enzymes are broken, you get sulfite toxicity. And so yeah. you become sensitive to uh, sulfur containing foods. And then that's a downward spiral because now you've got increasing deficiencies in sulfate throughout your body over time uh, because you're avoiding these foods that are causing obvious discomfort. And the, but the real underlying and reduce the glyphosate. So get rid of the glyphosate, you can probably eat those foods again. And that's essential for your health. But in the meantime, you could soak in Epsom salt baths to get sulfate coming in through the skin, avoiding that whole problem with the gut. Yeah. And I'm a big proponent of that for another reason too. I think it's just, uh, when you look at the levels of stress that people have these days, I mean, just getting in a, in a, Bathwater yes. with some Epsom salt can reduce your stress levels Absolutely. too. So you get your sulf you get your sulfur and you get to release a little bit of stress. So right. I like uh, the hot, hot bath as well. Just you know, like a, even a sauna. I mean, I think any kind of oh, hot yeah. sauna and hot bath is very healthy. Yeah, I've been seriously thinking about investing in a in a sauna. Um, after I saw your interview, but your interview with Dr. Mercola. Uh, another tool is to eat prebiotic foods, feed your, your, your gut with the healthy stuff, the prebiotics. And that's right. And that's it in order to help you uh, with your short chain amino um, fatty acids. Yeah. Yeah, because those are those are produced by your gut microbes from these undigestible fiber. We can't uh, we can't digest it, but our gut microbes can, and they turn it into very very useful nutrients that feed our gut, feed our colon colonocytes to make our colon healthy. And so when those become deficient, um, you get all kinds of issues with your colon. You can end up with um, Crohn's disease and things like that. So yeah, and some of those foods are dandelion greens, bok choy, garlic, leeks, onions. They're all great um, foods anyway, I think. Yeah. Me too. I, I, <laughs> I eat those on a regular basis anyway. So yes. um, and in so general, just eating a lot of salads, you know. Yeah, um, a, lot, a lot of leafy greens and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Probiotics mm -hmm. uh, are important and fermented foods. Mm -hmm. uh, Sauerkraut, apple cider vinegar. Kimchi. Um, yeah. Um, kombucha. Did you do a paper or, or I may be incorrect about this, about acetobacters? 
I did, I have been claiming that acetobacter may be able to help metabolize glyphosate. And this is because there are only a few microbes that are able to break glyphosate down. So glyphosate is pretty sturdy. It has an unusual carbon, um, it's a CP bond, carbon phosphorus bond. That's quite unusual. And so there are only some microbes that are able to break that bond and then break down glyphosate into simple things so that it can actually become nutrients. Like you can use that phosphorus as a source of phosphorus for the body. And um, acetobacter are among the short list of, um, of microbes that can do that. Some species of acetobacter. So it's sort of a question mark whether the ones in the apple cider vinegar can do it. But I'm sort of hoping that that's the case because I think a lot of people have found that yeah, eating vinegar on a regular basis is, is uh, health beneficial. And one of the reasons might be because it's able to actually clear the glyphosate, which is yeah. much better than just binding it and taking it out through the feces because then it's still around. You know, you want to get rid of it by breaking it down. What are the other acetobacter? Um, is kombucha? Oh, yeah. So all those fermented foods, I think, are going to have yeah, acetobacter. Uh, okay. Uh, and sauerkraut and apple cider vinegar and kombucha and kimchi, yeah. Okay, great. We're all gonna have so, a factor. Um, and then I wanted to talk about minerals because we know what we know that glyphosate's a chelator. Mm -hmm. So we're not only not getting it's it's blocking some of the uh, minerals in our gut. We're not getting some of those minerals you spoke about. But also the food we eat is not dense with those minerals too. So what are your recommendations? That's absolutely in that right. Area? In fact, Don Huber, Don Huber has talked about that. Probably he talked to you about that because yeah. he, I remember in his talk, he showed how, and sulfur was one of the things that was not taken up. It was dramatically right. reduced um, as well as things like, you know, zinc and cobalt, all those really important manganese uh, micronutrients that are essential for our well-being. So when we're not getting enough from our food, and then on top of that, glyphosate's chelating whatever we are getting, we really get into major deficiencies with these minerals. Um, and so, I mean, I think eating um, bone broth, I really like bone broth. We do a slow cook of a healthy, you know, grass-fed beef bone, a chicken, organic chicken bones, uh, cook it for a long time. And you can put some wonderful things in there too, like onions and garlic and whatnot, and make a really lovely bone broth. Um, you're pulling those minerals out of the bone in a natural uh, balance because that it's important. It's hard to just take like take zinc. You know, people. I mean, if you have zinc deficiency, take zinc. But you can be, you can get things imbalanced very quickly if you're taking individual minerals. So I always like to think of it as, of course, using sea salt rather than regular salt is another way that you're getting that the mineral, the natural mineral balance in seawater. Um, the um, the minerals need to be balanced appropriately so you don't get them out of whack. Because if you have too much copper, too little zinc, they interfere with each other in bad ways. I, I like that uh, Celtic sea salt company. Yes, I right. I can't think of the name of it right now. Uh, it may just be Celtic, Celtic sea, sea salt. Yeah, yeah. but their, their salt has a lot of the minerals in them. And, you know, some people, you just may need to supplement with mm -hmm. with more minerals so and, and i say everybody's different right. but then eating mineral rich foods is something i recommend and so things like eggs uh, organic eggs are a really good source of vitamins and minerals yeah. as well as healthy fats 
and um, and seafood, you know, oysters and clams and lobster and crabs, all of those are really Yeah, and if you eat meat, organ meat, right? Too, organ so. meat, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. one that's almost missing from our diet these days. Yeah. I'd, I'd imagine the livers of cows look so horrible, they couldn't possibly sell them. I'm, <laughs> I'm picturing these hideous looking livers. Yeah. That, you know, fatty liver disease. And I just think they would be very unappetizing and also not good for you because they're loaded up with all the toxins. Unfortunately, the the liver, which is so healthy, it has uh, so many nutrients, really nutrient dense, but it also is where toxins end up. And so it, it's a problem because the animals you're eating are not healthy. And so you can't afford to eat their liver because you're getting the poisons that go along with all the healthy stuff that would be in the liver if, you know, under normal circumstances. Right. And a couple more things you mentioned, I think a lot of people are aware of this, vitamin D, uh-huh, sunlight, um, yes. Sunlight, being in the sunlight. And I don't, and I like people to go outside without sunglasses also, which is sort yes. of a surprise that people, people think they're protecting their eyes from the sun uh, with the sunglasses. But actually, I think it's very damaging to small children. When you put sunglasses on a two-year-old, I think it's a very bad idea because they, they're depending upon that sunlight getting to the pineal gland. And the pineal gland is so important for, for sleep and for uh, regulating the the, the, the like night day cycle you know, and for me rhythms and for me it's it's also damaging because if your pineal gland isn't functioning uh correctly your intuition and things like that are are so are associated with the pineal gland and if they're yes. blocked you know maybe you're not as it's really a very a magical important gland the pineal gland and it needs sunlight to behave to work yeah. properly and when you're out in the sun, you do not want to wear sunscreen. Absolutely not. We have been programmed that we all need, we need to have all this stuff slathered all over our body and stuff. And, and we don't. And I, I believe the skin cancer is going up because of the sunscreen. Yes. I, yes. It's, um, it's pretty amazing that the, right, the rates of, um, of melanoma skin cancer have been going up steadily in step with the rise in the purchase sales of uh, sunscreens. It's, it's yeah. strongly correlated, which is so ironic because people are using the sunscreen to protect themselves from the thing the sunscreen is causing. So it's yeah. just great marketing on their part to be able yeah. to convince us that we need sunscreen. And it, it really has become very, um, it's annoying to me because the, the uh, doctors for children have become, I remember when my first granddaughter was born way back, it was quite a long time ago, over 20 years ago, um, the, the doctor told her mother that she needed to be very careful to keep the child out of the sun. And as soon as she was six months old, then she should start using sunscreen on that child. And I was uh, just really, really furious about that. Yeah. The doctor was teaching that the parents that this was the right thing to do. So the, that generation of parents became fanatical about putting sunscreen all over their kids. Yep. And I Every was really frustrated by that. Every time I go to the beach, I live not too far from the beach. Uh, I see it all day long, just yeah. with, ba with even with babies. And oh, it's yeah. terrible! It's, yeah. it's terrible. And the sunscreen is very—it's toxic. It's got aluminum. You know, it's—it um, uses aluminum to make it, so it's not this white paste. So it'll just go on smoothly. And aluminum goes through the skin and messes up the uh, skin's ability actually to naturally protect from the sun. So it's so yeah. stupid. Yeah. Uh, another thing you have listed as a solution is avoiding EMFs. And, you know, that's yes. uh, something that is so important and it's getting harder and harder to avoid. Right. Uh, You're going in the wrong direction with that one, too. Yeah, right? with, the, with the 5G and, and the dangers yes. of that. And if you're not aware of that, 
look it up. Do your do your homework on what what five G is. I mean the the other EMFs, the the four and the three, they're bad enough. But the five G is like I don't know. Somebody I was listening to something and the percentage of radiation that you get from from the five G radio frequencies. I mean versus the four G. It's some phenomenal figure, and don't quote me on this, but it's like 100,000 times higher or something like that when I heard that. And this is from somebody who's been really studying this. So No, there's a lot of people that are speaking out about the dangers of 5G. And meanwhile, we're just going about it. You know, we're... It's curious how we get so spoiled by something we want, you know. Convenience. Right. And the idea of just being able to interconnect the way we can with the iPhones and all of this, that we want to have these high bit rates and, and, um, and we don't know what it's doing to us long term. And it'll take a long time before we do know. And then the question is, if we do know, will we be willing to let it go when we've become so used to having it? This is a question that's similar to what's going on with glyphosate. You know, you get the convenience of something that's extremely toxic and you don't know it's toxic. And once you do know it's toxic, do you actually are you motivated to go back or not? You know, have you become so dependent on this thing that you're like, oh, well, if I'm going to get brain cancer, that's fine. You know what I mean? It's just, we, uh, we aren't very good at um, protecting ourselves from something down the road that's being caused by something happening right now, I feel. Well, I, I agree with you, but I think that, that the importance of, uh, of doing the education Right. I mean, I can't say enough about that. You know, you you writing the book, me getting this information out to as many people, and there's there's a lot of people that are are trying to assist, and you just uh, you put it out there, and you hope that people will be empowered or hear one little tidbit of something that they they might use. You know, then then we're we're doing our work. Right. Yeah. It just takes a lot of time to get people to be aware of what's happening and then to fix it. Fixing yeah. it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, I feel sorry for the next generation with what we're leaving behind to them because they're going to really be struggling yeah. to try to fight all of this that we've, uh, the heritage that we've left them with. Yeah. The toxic legacy. Just, right. You know, exactly. but, yeah, it was a, a great title to your book. So thank you, Stephanie, uh, for writing the book and for educating us uh, about the dangers of glyphosate. And hopefully our listeners, you know, and maybe you know a lot of this, but there's so many people that don't. As I walk through the aisles of Home Depot, seeing people grabbing right. the Roundup because it works to kill the weeds, they are unaware of what it might be doing to their, their health, the environment, the climate, their children, their pets. Right. I, I didn't talk about the pets, but there's a chapter in the book about, you know, the ways that your pets can become ill. You know, they, they, through the food, through the environment, through it being sprayed on lawns and parks and the dogs, it gets on their skin and gets into their lungs and in their water, in their drinking mm-hmm. water, because mm-hmm. it's been shown in there. So yeah, it, it can affect your pets. And if you look at the cancer rate, in pets i know compared to what it was 30 40 years ago it's going up and up so um 
thank you again for being on our show and again, share the show with other people because you could really make a difference in somebody's life that, that doesn't know this information. So we're just really glad that you were on with us today. And I always follow your research and there's plenty of information out there and other, other YouTubes and things about uh, Stephanie Senoff and, and her work. And it, it's fascinating. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me.